Well, good morning. It's so great to see each and every one of you here this morning. Let's start like this. Finish this statement. You're in good hands with... All right. All right. Isn't that good? It's a clever tagline. I like it. In that tagline, what Allstate is trying to communicate is that their insurance is going to satisfy your every need. It's going to bring you the sense of peace that you long for. And now whether or not they deliver on that promise, that's not for me to say because we go with someone else. But I will say this. In whose hands do you trust to meet your every need in this life? What about in the life after this life? Whose hands do you trust? You know, the only hands that are really good, the only hands that we can really rest in, are the pierced hands of Jesus Christ. In his hands, we are safe. In his hands, we are secure. In his hands, we are provided for. We're in good hands. We're in great hands when we're in Jesus' hands. And I want to present to you from our text this morning three reasons why I believe that, that we are in great hands with Jesus' hands. So if you will... Please turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 8, and we'll be considering verses 1 through 10. While you're doing that, can you believe that we're in chapter 8? We are approaching the halfway point through the book of Mark, and I just want to give everyone a heads up real quick. We're going to be finishing chapter 8 here in the next couple of weeks, and we're actually going to take a break from Mark. I have a mini-series that I want to preach through June and part of July, and then we're going to do our annual summer elder series And we're going to be going through several parts of the book of Acts. But don't worry, because we're going to get back to Mark this fall. And there's some exciting things coming up by way of sermon series. So I hope you're looking forward to the weeks and months that lie ahead. Well, just by way of reminder, last week we looked at the reach of the gospel and how the gospel has literally crashed through racial barriers Jesus was in Gentile country, you may remember. He was north and then east of the Sea of Galilee. He ministered to the Seraphonician woman, and then he ministered to the deaf man. And all of this ministry revealed that, by extension, the gospel is meant for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And that had always been the plan. The gospel was meant to come to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And Jesus, in our passage today, he's going to continue his ministry To the Gentiles. So, you ready to dive in? Let's do it. Here's your first point from our text this morning Jesus sees our needs. Why are we in great hands with Jesus? Because he sees our needs. Let's read from the text again, chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. Now, if this feels a little deja vu, 
That's because we just had an incident like this a couple of chapters ago in chapter 6. Jesus, you may remember, he fed a crowd of 5,000 men, not including women and children, and he did so with five loaves, and two fi- five loaves of bread and two fish. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, in that passage, chapter 6, verses 30 through 56, we're told that Jesus sees that crowd and he has compassion on them. And that word in chapter 6 for compassion is the same word that we see here in verse 2 of chapter 8. Jesus is compassionate toward the crowd. Why? Well, let's break this down and let's see what's going on. The chapter opens with, in those days. Now, what that phrase does is that connects us with the events that have been happening in chapter 7. So in other words, Jesus is still on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. He's still in Gentile country. And we talked last week that Jesus had likely gone into Gentile country to get away from things. He was trying to get out of the public spotlight, possibly because he is getting ready to head to Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. But as we saw last week, he couldn't get away from people. People found him. Even Gentiles had heard the stories and they found him because they needed him. Now, since last week, things have escalated. We get to chapter 8, and now there's a large crowd, typical of what we see with Jesus and his ministry. He's here still in the Decapolis, and this is most likely a mixed crowd. It's most likely Gentiles and Jews, because Decapolis was mainly Gentile, but there were Jews who lived there as well. So Jesus is here with his crowd, and there's a problem. Verse 2, Jesus tells his disciples, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. So the crowd has been with Jesus, we see here, three days, and they've had nothing to eat. Think about that. Three days with nothing to eat. Jesus, presumably had been teaching them this whole time, and they've gone this whole time without food, and I submit to you that this demonstrates something about the crowd. Sitting and listening to Jesus' teaching was more important to them than nourishment. They sat under his teaching for three days without food. That's incredible if you think about that. And I think that shows the desperation of the people for strong spiritual teaching. William L. Lane is a commentator, and he marks, or he uh, says this about the Gospel of Mark, the sole purpose of the feeding is to meet the physical needs of the multitude who chose to be nourished by Jesus' word rather than bread. Can I take just a moment with that in mind and ask you this question? Where are your priorities? Where are my priorities? Jesus himself says in Matthew 4, in response to Satan's temptation, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we should necessarily neglect physical needs for spiritual needs, though there may be times for that. But I will say this. It is so easy for us to meet our physical needs and neglect our spiritual needs. And do you know why? Our physical needs are evident. If you're not already, you're going to be hungry soon for lunch. And you know you will. You will sense that. But you know something? 
We don't always sense our spiritual needs. We don't always sense them until we've neglected them to a point that things are dire. Let me illustrate what I'm saying here. Have you ever walked away from a time of worship and you thought to yourself, man, I needed that. I didn't even realize how much I needed that. You found your soul was refreshed and renewed in a way that you hadn't felt in a long time. It's easy to neglect those spiritual needs because we don't feel the effects of neglecting them at first. Not like how we feel the neglect of our physical needs. And it's not till after a season of neglect that we really sense we're in a deep need for communion with God. So let me ask, do you make that communion with God a priority? I think we could learn something here from the crowd that was willing to neglect their physical needs in order to receive something far more precious. Now nevertheless, this extended time without food can't go on indefinitely. Physical needs are very real, after all, and they're hungry. But not just hungry, this situation is getting serious. Before, in chapter 6, the crowd had been without food all day. That's one thing. Here, they've been without food for three days. This is dire. And it's Jesus who raises the issue. Did you catch that? It's Jesus who brings up the matter of having no food. Last time, during the feeding of the 5,000, it was the disciples who brought it up, and their solution was, send the crowd away to get food. But Jesus here in our passage, he has compassion, and his compassion goes to the extent that he doesn't wish to send them away. And it's almost like, as he's dealing with the disciples here, it's almost like he anticipates what they might suggest. If he had just merely said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me for three days and have nothing to eat, the disciples might have said, well, send them away, like they did last time. But that's not an option. If he sends them away now, they're likely not to make it. He sees their need, and Jesus sees our needs. In Matthew 6, 31 and 32, the Bible reads, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what we shall, shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. <clears throat> God sees you right where you are. He knows your needs even before you know them yourself. In fact, in just a few verses prior in Matthew 6, Jesus says, For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. God is intimately involved in your life. He sees you right where you are, and he knows exactly what you need. And do you know what this does for us? It frees us from anxiety, or it should free us from anxiety. Because if God truly sees us, if he truly knows what we need, and if he is truly all-powerful, then that should set us free from fret, worry, and anxiety. And you might stop and think, well, then what's my problem? Because I'm still anxious. Well, anxiety is a sign that our faith is under attack. John Piper says this, when anxiety strikes, this doesn't mean that we are faithless. It means our faith is being attacked. 
John Piper goes on to say, you deal with anxiety by battling unbelief and you battle unbelief by meditating on God's word and asking for the help of his spirit. The unbelief we face that leads to anxiety is ultimately the unbelief that God actually sees our needs. Or maybe we do think God sees, but we question if he really cares. We need to rest in the truth that our Heavenly Father does see our need, and he does care. And we get there by meditating on his word and asking the Spirit for help. And a good place to start when it comes to meditating is start in our passage right here where he is compassionate about the needs of the crowd. Meditate on the passage that is before us because the same compassion is true for us. So let me encourage you, bring your needs to him. Tell him what's going on in your life. Tell him what's going on in your heart. Even though he already knows He loves it when his children communicate. Bring your needs to him and trust in his watchful eye by meditating on his word and by asking the spirit for help. Jesus sees our needs. Secondly, Jesus invites you to participate. Jesus invites you to participate. Jesus comes to the disciples. He shares with them his concern. And how are they going to respond? Now, we might expect the disciples to get excited. We might expect them to think, he's going to do it again. He's going to do that, you know, food multiplication thing. Get the baskets ready. But no. Look how they respond. Verse 4. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. Really? I mean, really? Are they really that thick? The feeding of the 5,000 happened just two chapters ago. Have they already forgotten? They even use that term desolate place in verse 6. It's not the same Greek word as in chapter 6, but it carries the same idea. You'd think that would have been a clue to them. You know, the disciples' forgetfulness over the first feeding in chapter 6 has actually prompted some to suggest that there really was just one feeding. Mark just recorded it twice. But there are problems with that theory. There are major differences between the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8. And these differences are not the kind of differences you might expect from the passing down of oral stories. Let me explain what I mean. The stories about Jesus were passed down along through oral transmission before the gospel writers wrote them down. And as you know... When stories are shared orally, details about the story tend to change. We see this in gossip. You know, people add just a little here, they add just a little there, till what's being shared is a gross exaggeration of what actually happened. But it's in the details that tend to change. The main features of the story typically stay the same. But when we get to the differences between the two crowd-feeding stories, the main features are different while a lot of the details remain the same. For instance, the number of people fed is different. 
the original portions of food that Jesus started with are different. In chapter 6, he had five loaves and two fish. Here he has seven loaves, and the number of fish isn't even given. The baskets left over is different. These are key features that give strong support that this is not a retelling of the feeding of the crowd, but a second feeding. And this is further supported, we should have clued into this right away, when Mark used the word again in verse 1. He's implying this feeding of a great crowd is happening again. So it's not, a, it's not one feeding recorded twice, it's a second feeding, which brings us back to the question, why have the disciples forgotten? Well, let me give you some possibilities. Jesus' ministry lasted for about three years. And the disciples have traveled, they've listened, they've ministered alongside him for three years. And it is likely that a lot of time has passed between the first feeding and this feeding. In the little gospel of Mark, they're separated by two mere chapters. But in actuality, it could have been months, maybe even up to a year, that there's a, there's, that the time between these two events. Let me give you a second possibility. It's true that mature believers have a habit of forgetting God's goodness. Now, there's a strong arguments here that the disciples are not mature believers. But the point is, even mature believers tend to forget. Let me ask, how many times have you forgotten how God provided for you in a time of need? How many times in your life did you come to another point where you were in need and you were just as stressed out as the previous time? We are forgetful. We shouldn't really be that hard on the disciples because we fall prey to the same failures. And there's something else that we caught a glimpse of at the end of chapter 6. You may remember the disciples did not understand about their loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Do you remember that little phrase at the end of chapter 6? They still didn't get it at the end of chapter 6. They still didn't get what the miracles were pointing to. And they still hear in chapter 8, they don't get who they're with. They don't get it. But can I let you in on a little secret? They're about to. Something is about to happen in chapter 8. And we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Jesus invites us to participate. Just as he invited the disciples to participate, so he invites us. And this brings, he brings this concern to the disciples. Why did he do that? You ever thought about that? Why did he bring this up to the disciples? I mean, let's be honest. Can they do anything about the situation? Can they multiply bread like Jesus? Of course not. Jesus wasn't coming to them looking for help. He was coming to them to give them an opportunity to respond in faith. He was inviting them to be a part of what he was about to do. Are you going to trust me? Are you with me? And the same is true of us. Let's be honest, and I don't want to hurt your ego, but Jesus doesn't need us. He doesn't. He can meet needs without our help, but the crazy thing is, he wants our help. He has invited us for specific reasons and to meet specific needs. He wants to use us to meet each other's needs. You know, a number of years ago, one of our children was hospitalized for dehydration after being sick and unable to keep fluids down. 
And it was the people of this church that stepped in and helped during that time of need. God didn't have to use you, but he wanted to. He invited you, and of course, we benefited and were blessed and are deeply grateful. Now, here's the thing. We all in this room, we all have needs, physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs, and God has a plan to meet those, and most likely, that plan involves others within this room. All around you, your brothers and sisters are in need. How might God be wanting to use you to touch the life of someone else? Do you know, this is one of the major reasons why we do small groups as a church. I tell people when they go through membership class that small groups, one of the reasons we do them is to be a primary support during times of hardship. When we're going through something difficult, our small group should be there to help. That's what creates community relying on one another for support. Do you have that? Do you sense, and let me ask this seriously, do you sense here at Harvest Decatur that you're not connecting with people? Could the reason be, just ask yourself honestly, could the reason be that I'm not in a small group, that's why I'm not connecting with people? Or could the reason be that I am in a small group, but you know, I'm neglecting those relationships within my small group? Are you reaching out to others? And are they reaching out to you? Are you inviting others into your life, into your needs, as you are reaching out, trying to see others and their needs? Jesus is inviting you to participate in helping others in need. How are you responding to that invite? How are you inviting others to help you? Unfortunately, the disciples, they don't get it. So they respond without faith. Verse four, and his disciples answered, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's a hopeless cause, Jesus. And yet, does that deter him? Look what he says. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Jesus asked that same question in chapter six. See, all along the way, there are clues that should have sparked the disciples' memories, but for whatever reason, they'd forgotten. They have seven loaves, which is different from when they had the five. And as I said, when I preached through the feeding of the 5,000, it's likely these loaves are the disciples' meal. It's what they have to eat. But Jesus had a different plan. That plan including inviting the disciples to exercise their faith and join him. See, they kind of give this half-hearted, doubtful reply. But because of the sheer grace of God, he uses them anyway. How many loaves do you have? Seven. Let's do this. Jesus is inviting us to be a part of meeting needs. We can respond in faith and be part of that. Or we can not respond and miss out on blessing others and being blessed ourselves. Or, believe it or not, there's a third option. We can, like the disciples, give a half-hearted, faithless response and God uses us anyway. Why? Quite simply because he's gracious. God accepts imperfect people with imperfect faith to do his perfect work. But that should not be an excuse not to get out there 
and meet each other's needs. He invites us to participate, so let me challenge you, church. Do so in faith. Simply say, here I am, Lord. Use me. We're talking about being in great hands with Jesus, and the three reasons that I'm giving you are this. One, he sees our needs. Two, he invites us to participate. Lastly, Jesus provides with abundance. Jesus provides with abundance. Look at verse six with me. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set out before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Just like before. Just like before, Jesus has the crowd sit. He gives thanks. He breaks the bread. And he passes it to his disciples who in turn pass it out to the crowd. Now it's important in that giving thanks there. I want to mention something. Jesus doesn't bless the food. He doesn't do something miraculous to the food by pronouncing a blessing here. He's simply giving thanks to God. How many of you guys pray before you eat? I'm just going to pretend all of you did. Raise your hands. Okay. Do you ever wonder where that came from? Like Practically every Christian I have ever met prays before they eat. Where did that come from? Well, to be honest, it actually existed as a Jewish practice before Jesus does it. But here in the Gospels, we see Jesus modeling that. I think it's a good thing. We should give thanks We should remember when we pray before a meal, we're giving thanks to God. See, we don't need God to to bless it as if it's some kind of magical thing here. Just simply be thankful for it. The fact that you have it is a blessing. The disciples here, they pass out the food at this point, and I have to wonder, is this the moment? Is Is this the aha moment for them? Well, we're not told. But we are given a very interesting detail, another difference in this story. The fish don't come in till now. He gives thanks for the bread and they start passing it out. And then, did you notice that? The fish kind of come in later, almost as if maybe they forgot they had fish or maybe someone showed up afterward with some fish. We're not sure what happened there. But it's interesting that even here, Jesus stops a second time and prays, or rather gives thanks for the food. He thanks thanks for the bread and then he gives thanks for the fish. Why did he do this twice? Once is enough, right? I mean, do we have to give thanks for our meal and then for dessert? No, you don't have to do that. Why does Jesus do it twice? Well, one possibility, if you remember that we are in the context of a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, and I have every reason to believe we are, Jesus gives thanks for the food, and doing that would have been a new concept to the Gentiles. So it could be, we're not sure here, but it could be that Jesus stops and gives thanks a second time in an attempt to demonstrate to those unused to such practices that we should be grateful for our food to God. It acknowledges that this doesn't ultimately come from man. Yes, we work for it. Yes, we pay for it. Yes, we prepare it. But ultimately, it's a gift from the Lord. And the text tells us the people eat and then just as before they are satisfied. God's miracles never leave people wanting. 
And they take up, this time, seven baskets full. And these baskets, there's actually a different Greek word for these baskets. They're different than the ones in chapter 6. In chapter 6, they were smaller baskets. These are large baskets. In fact, these are the kinds of baskets that, that Paul was lowered in on the wall of Damascus. You might remember the story from Acts chapter 9. The point is that Jesus doesn't just provide. He provides and then some. He provides with abundance. Now there's the question, is there some significance to the number of seven baskets here? Last time there seemed to be significance that they ended up with 12 baskets and there were 12 hungry disciples. So is the number seven significant here? Well, some have thought to try to connect this number to the seven loaves. Others tried to have connected it to the Gentiles in some way. But I'm just going to be honest with you, really, all those attempts are not very supported in Scripture. So I think it's safe to say that there were lots left over and they had to do something with the leftovers, so they put them in baskets. (laughs) But you want to know what's interesting. We get to the end of this story and there's not much fanfare. There's not much celebration of this miracle. We're given the number of people, about 4,000, and the book of Matthew tells us that did not include women and children. And then Jesus dismisses them, and he and the disciples hop in a boat and leave. They go to this place called Dalmanutha, which, by the way, that location of that is unknown. It could be another name from Magadan or Magdala, but it's on the west side of the Sea of Capernaum, to our best guess. But there's no celebration. It's just kind of, this happened. Moving on. Where's the shock? Where's the awe? Where's the don't tell anybody about this and then everyone goes out and tells everybody about it anyway? It's missing. Even Matthew's account ends in a similar way. There's no wow. Now, quite simply, it could be that Mark just didn't include it. There was a wow response, but Mark didn't include it. He's just moving on. Maybe they did respond. But I do think that something is going on here, and I think Mark is using this to point not to the crowd, but to the disciples. I think there could be, the the lack of the awe-filled response is a reflection of the disciples' dullness of understanding. Now, why do I say that? I say that because something significant is about to happen in reference to the disciples' dullness of understanding, but you're going to have to come back to find out what I'm talking about. The point is, Jesus provides with abundance. He doesn't tease the crowd with a few crumbs. He grants them a meal big enough to feed them and then have massive amounts left over. Why are we in great hands with Jesus? Because he will provide and his provisions are bountiful. He will meet our every need and we will be satisfied. Perhaps you've heard the story of George Mueller and the 300 hungry orphans. The story goes that George Mueller, during the 1800s, he was the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. And one day the orphans were up, they were dressed, they were ready for school, but there was literally nothing to eat. George Mueller had 300, there's not 300 people in this room, 300 orphans had them go down to the dining room, sit at the tables, and then he thanked God for the food and waited. He knew God was going to provide. Minutes later, a baker knocked on the door. 
This baker, knowing that George Mueller was in need, had spent all night baking bread. And not long after that, another knock was at the door, and it was the milkman who had broken down right in front of the orphanage. And the milk was going to spoil by the time the cart was fixed, so he asked George Mueller if he could use some free milk. Don't tell me God doesn't provide. He does. He provides, and he provides with abundance. And you might be sitting there, and you might say, I know what you're saying, but it doesn't always happen like that. And you're right. You're right. We might have a need that God meets, and it doesn't feel like it's met with abundance. Perhaps you have a bill that's a certain amount of money, and you don't know how you're going to pay that. And then from out of nowhere, somebody gives you just the right amount of money to pay the bill. You might think, that's not abundance. No, maybe not in one way, but it did bless you. It did keep you out of debt. It did meet that need. We might have other situations where we have a perceived need that continually goes unmet. And maybe the reason why we feel like God's not meeting that need is it's not really a need, it's a want. Other times, we might have real needs. And they might go unmet for years, and we might think, why has God not met that? Let me assure you there's a reason. Ultimately, our needs are meant to point us to the one who meets our needs. It's not about the need. It's about him. And let me be clear about something. When I say Jesus provides with abundance, I'm not meaning you're going to be blessed with a lot of stuff. I don't preach a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying God's going to give you lots of success and money and fame all to your heart's desire. Look at the crowd. What did the crowd need? Food. What did Jesus provide? Food. He meets our needs and he does it in his way and in his timing. I'm not promising you that all your dreams will come true. Can I be real with you? I actually hope they don't. Because when all of our dreams come true, that's actually the worst thing that God can do for us. Because then we easily take our eyes off of him, we put it on ourselves, and we forget that we need him. What I am saying is that when there is a genuine need, he is going to meet that in his timing and in his way, and you will be blessed, and it will be abundant. Maybe not a lot of need met, maybe not over met, but you're going to be blessed. You're going to be emotionally blessed. You're going to be spiritually blessed. But while that need remains unmet, he is wanting that need to drive you to him. He wants to be what meets your needs. Do you have a need for companionship? He wants to meet that with himself. Do you have a need for purpose in your life? He meets that need by being your purpose. This whole idea of Jesus meeting our needs abundantly. You know, John 10.10 says this. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that's the abundantly that Jesus wants to give you. He wants to give you life and give it to you abundantly. And the main way that Jesus does that is providing salvation. It's an escape from hell, yes, but it's also granting us life and peace and joy no matter our circumstances. 
He wants to give you the abundance of peace and joy and security that comes from the knowledge that you are a saved child of God, that you have a relationship with him. That's what the abundant provision is. See, don't you see, when you are secure in your eternal destiny, when you are secure with Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what your state in this life is. I believe he meets needs on this planet. Don't get me wrong. I believe that's one of the things the passage is even speaking to. But even if you live this life in constant want, never fully satisfied, you can still rejoice that your Savior is with you and the abundant life is coming. The knowledge of that should be enough to sustain us whatever happens during our time on earth. By the way, this doesn't negate what I said earlier. Bring your needs to him. Be ready to serve others and meet their needs. But ultimately, ultimately, be joyful that your greatest need is already met. And one day, when you step into glory, your every need will be abundantly satisfied. And let that knowledge carry you through this life, no matter what your needs are. So that begs the question, do you know him? Do you know this Jesus I speak of? Do you want to? It's quite simple. The way to know Jesus is to confess to him that you are a sinner in need of his gift of salvation and embrace it by faith. That's all it is. It's a confession that I am a sinner in need of Jesus Christ and I embrace him by faith. And believe it or not, you could do that right now in the quietness of your heart, and I urge you to do that. But I also am available. If you need to talk, catch me after service. I'd be happy to answer more questions. Our story is about the feeding of the 4,000, but it's not really about bread, is it? This story is about how Jesus had compassion on a very hungry crowd and saw their physical needs, but it's not really about filling stomachs, is it? See, John 6.35 reads, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus did a miracle in that he fed a multitude a multitude with Gentiles present. The scraps from the table of the Jews have spilled over onto the Gentiles, but it's not about bread. It's not about Jesus meeting our every physical need, though I believe he will do that. He knows you need food, shelter, clothing, family, and those things, but the passage isn't meant to merely point to Jesus meeting physical needs. It's meant to point to our deepest need, the spiritual need that we have for Jesus himself. Don't come to Jesus for something you want. Come to Jesus for Jesus. God will provide, but it's not really about what he provides in this life. It's nice to be provided for, don't get me wrong, but what does all the provision mean? Don't miss it. Don't miss it like the disciples did. His provision for you in this life is a testimony of his love and points to the provision that we truly need, him. And how do we respond to that? 
How do we respond to his gift for our greatest need? How do we take full advantage of Jesus providing us himself? What would it look like this week if you were to go home and take full advantage of Christ's provision for your greatest need? It would look like this. It would look like you setting aside the distractions that come with the needs of the day and focusing on your Savior. It would look like preaching the gospel to yourself that your greatest need has already been provided for. It would be meditating on the truth that Jesus has already taken your sin, your guilt, and your punishment, and in turn, he has given you his peace, his joy, and a life to come. And that's why we can say we are in great hands with Jesus. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you meet our every need. Thank you for meeting the physical needs that we have here on this earth. You know we need food, we need shelter, we need clothing, we need jobs, we need relationships, we need so much, and you are faithful to provide. But Lord, let us not be distracted by those things. Let us come to realize that our greatest need and the need you long to meet is our need for you. We need you as our savior. We need you as our sustainer. We need you, our shepherd, our Lord, and our constant companion. Remind us throughout this upcoming week of our need for you and cause us to take our attention away from the needs that distract us and turn our attention to our Savior who awaits with open arms. We pray this in the great and awesome name, the name of Jesus.